Faith family, it's been a really hard 21 months. It's kind of difficult to think about what life was like before the pandemic. But you think about what has transpired over the last two years, we've all been through a lot. Not only have we experienced a worldwide pandemic where hundreds of thousands of people have lost their lives, even some of whom we know and love. We've seen a a government that has seen great chaos. We've had vicious debates over masks versus no masks, vaccine versus no vaccine. We've had great dumpster fires break out on social media. We're in the middle of an economic recovery, and there's uncertainty and even fear. And it's in a season like this in which the world is weary. The world is tired. The world is wondering, when is this going to be over? Is there any hope? Well, you see, God is faithful. And even in the midst of what we are going through, we are reminded at Christmas that there is hope. There is a reason for us to raise our heads and smile at the days that are ahead of us because even though the next 100 years may look really difficult for us, we know what the next 100 million look like. As followers of Jesus, we're not living for the here and now. We are preparing for the city that is coming for us. We are longing for the kingdom that is coming while we labor for the kingdom here and now. But even in the midst of this difficulty and hardship that we are all facing, the weariness that many of us, if not all of us, are feeling, the question is, is there hope for that mom who has an overwhelming amount of things on her to-do list and she feels the stress of trying to make sure everybody's needs are taken care of. For that husband and father who feels the pressure of providing and protecting and doing everything he feels like he needs to do. For that teenager facing depression who continually goes to their electronic device, getting that extra hit of dopamine, hoping that that will help soothe their weary soul only to get off of that device and be more depressed than when they started. The question is, is there hope? And what we're going to see this morning in the text of Scripture, the answer is absolutely. There is hope in the gospel. The glory to the newborn king who has come for us. And when you encounter this Jesus... He changes everything about you. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We're going to be setting up camp in this great gospel of Luke. Luke is one of my favorite uh, gospel accounts. And some of you are thinking, yeah, right. You just spent over a year in the gospel of Mark. But I love Luke. Um, Luke gives details that Matthew, Mark, and John do not. He's a physician. He's a doctor. In fact, we learn in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, that Luke is a beloved physician who's a a comrade, a partner in ministry of the apostle Paul. And he writes his gospel to a man named Theophilus. 
If you go back to chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he writes this to most excellent Theophilus. That title, most excellent, means this is probably a man, Theophilus, who is wealthy, a man who's using his resources to financially undergird the research that Luke is doing to gather all the information so that Theophilus can have an orderly account of everything about the life and ministry of Jesus. We see in Luke chapter 1 where he says, uh, if I can get caught up, doing this one-handed, y'all, this is going to be fun. Hang in there with me. And he says in Luke 1, I have carefully investigated everything from the first to last to write to you in orderly accounts so that you may know the certainty of what you have been instructed. Luke's carefully investigated He's done his interviews. He's done his due diligence. He's asked the questions of the the, the eyewitnesses of Jesus. And he gives an orderly account. He's laying out in his gospel throughout these 24 chapters who Jesus is and what are the things that he has done. He begins in chapter 1 with the, the birth story of John the Baptist. We see the relationship that is forged between John the Baptist's mom, Elizabeth, and Jesus' mom, Mary. We see the story of how John got his name because his father, Zechariah, had a vision in the temple and realized that God is telling him to name his son John, and he didn't believe, and so God gives him, takes away his ability to speak until his son is born. And then we get into chapter 2, where we see the birth story of Jesus. Caesar Augustus has made a decree that everyone be registered in their hometown. Now, due to Caesar Augustus's command that a census be taken, Joseph and Mary were required to make a 70-mile, five-day trip from Nazareth up in northern Israel to Bethlehem towards the south. Meanwhile, this long 70-mile trip is while Mary is nine months pregnant. What a woman. And upon their arrival in Bethlehem, Mary gives birth to Jesus, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, lays him in a manger because there's no guest room available for them. And that is where we pick up in Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. The scripture says, In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. 
the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Outside of Bethlehem, shepherds kept their eyes watching over their sheep. But unbeknownst to them, they were about to experience the greatest birth announcement ever. And that would be a night that they, and indeed the rest of the world, would never forget. I want you to notice these truths right here from the text. The first is this. I want you to notice the glorious pronouncement of Jesus' birth. The glorious pronouncement. It's nighttime. These Poor, uneducated, blue-collar shepherds are doing what they do every night. They're watching their sheep, keeping an eye out for predators, surveying the landscape to make sure that their flock does not wander away. And it's against this backdrop that the angel of the Lord appears. Several years ago, Christy and I got to go to the very field where this took place. In fact, I I took uh, this picture that I want you to see. This is the field that the angels appeared on that night. This is called Shepherd's Field. It's in a region just outside of Bethlehem. And it's in this pasture that these meager peasant shepherds are doing what they've done night after night, week after week, month after month, year after year. And then suddenly... An angel of the Lord appears, and the glory of the Lord envelops the shepherds. And what is their response? Sheer terror. We see this reaction when people in the scriptures encounter an angel. When you go back to Daniel, when an angel appeared to him, the text says he lost his strength, his face turned deathly pale, and he felt helpless. Similar to Balaam, who saw an angel of the Lord and fell face down to the ground. Similar to the response of the women who go to the empty tomb of Jesus and they encounter an angel there waiting and they are in sheer terror. You see, angels in Scripture are not babies with wings playing harps on clouds. As much as you might have those figurines, that's not a faithful picture. We see in Scripture that when an angel appears to people in Scripture, the people cower in fear. There's absolute terror when their eyes look upon these angels that have been made God and are coming from the very presence of God into their presence. But the angel tells them, don't be afraid. For look, I have good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The angel's saying, I've got the greatest news of all. It's time to celebrate. This good news of great joy, that word for great is is similar to our word for mega. This is good news of mega joy. Like this is a spike of the football. This is a celebration over what God is about to do. And who's it for? It's for all people. Okay, so what is this good news? Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born for you. Hey, yo, let's go. The Savior that was born for these shepherds is the same Savior that was born for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son 
that whosoever believes upon him will not perish, but have everlasting life. What we see at Christmas time is the fulfillment of God's promise of his love for you, that he sends his son, the Messiah, the Lord, the one that the entire Old Testament is pointing forward to. This Yahweh who's going to come and take on human flesh and identify with you and identify with me. He knows the struggles you experience. He knows the temptations that you go through. And yet he is the perfect son of God who is tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin, lives the perfect life that you and I couldn't live, and then dies the death that we deserved. This is God's son who's coming forth for us. He is, verse 11, the Messiah. He's the Lord. He is the one that is the promised one who has finally arrived. And God is announcing his birth, not to the politically powerful, not to wealthy aristocrats, not to religious leaders, but to humble peasant shepherds. You see, God chose to reveal himself not to the proud, to the humble. He chose to reveal himself to the weak, the unassuming outsiders, those who don't have votes, those who don't have political clout, those who don't have a savings account, those who don't have an education, those who don't have an online presence. You see, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You see, God is not impressed by wealth. He's not impressed by political power. He's not impressed by those who have a social media presence and those who are movers and shakers. God is not impressed by that. God is impressed by a humble heart. Someone who is low in stature. He's not wowed by big bank accounts. He's wowed by big faith. People who love him and trust him even in the midst of hardship and difficulty. Here are these outcasts, these shepherds, these nobodies who no one was thinking God would appear to them. Here he is drawing near to the weak and the poor and the powerless and the forgotten because that's where he gets his greatest glory. You know, sometimes we think if we could just see God do something with the rich and the powerful, but you see, they would see it as something that they did. Look how awesome I am. Look at my ability. And the Lord says, I don't get great glory through those who are self-sufficient. I get glory who know that they can't do it. Those who are desperate for me, God is glorified most through those who know that they can't. And here are these shepherds out in the field, a bunch of nobodies in the eyes of the world, and yet that is who God reveals himself to. Do you find yourself looking down on others? Do you have some extra swagger about what kind of car you drive or how big your house is or how many extra letters you have after your name? Do you find yourself seeing as someone's more important than others? At least you're not from that part of town, or at least you don't have that kind of reputation. That's the kind of person the Lord is looking for, is those who think there's no way God could work through them. And yet the angel of the Lord appears to these 
shepherds. God is looking for those who are humble. God is looking for those who know they are weak because when we are weak, that is when he is strong. So how are the shepherds to know who this baby is? When they get to Bethlehem, how do they know? Well, the angel tells them. Look at verse 12. The angel says, you will find a baby wrapped tightly in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Okay, now that phrase, swaddling cloths, is something the shepherds would know to look for. Well, Kenneth, what do you mean? When Christy and I were over in Israel, we spent time going into these caves around that field you just saw. There are caves all over the place in which shepherds would regularly take the sheep into the caves to protect them from bad weather. But what's interesting about these caves is that the walls are extremely sharp. The rocks and the edges are very, very sharp. In fact, if you ran your hand along the wall of this cave, your fingers would be bloody and cut up because they're so sharp. But let's also keep in mind, Bethlehem is six miles south of Jerusalem. These sheep were being bred for temple sacrifice. These sheep were being born for one purpose, to die. And so these shepherds, whenever they would go into these caves, they would wrap these sheep with swaddling cloths to protect their coat, to protect their bodies, so that it would fulfill what Leviticus chapter 1 says, that a sacrifice must be unblemished. It cannot have cuts and bruises. It cannot be a weak sheep. It needs to be the best. And so these sheep, these shepherds would regularly wrap these sheep in swaddling cloths to protect them inside of these caves. Uh-oh, do you see the connection? You see, Jesus is the perfect unblemished lamb of God, wrapped in swaddling cloth, who takes away the sins of the world through his death on the cross. Jesus was born to die. Jesus is the perfect lamb who was born for sacrifice. We just sang that together. Jesus is the one who was wrapped in swaddling cloths just like these sheep that were born for sacrifice. These sheep would be marked to Jerusalem for there their blood would be shed for the brief temporary atonement of sin, of God, of sin for God's people. We see Jesus who was marched to Jerusalem where he gave a perfect once and for all sacrifice through his shed blood on the cross. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I hope you'll see this Christmas who this Jesus is, that he is God's Son, God's promised one, the Son of the Most High who has come for us so that in your brokenness and in your sin and in your shame and in your past, in which he's fully aware, he still chooses the nails. He still chooses to go to the cross. He gives his life at the cross and he gives his life as a substitute for you. You are so loved by God. And Christmas is God's reminder of his perfect plan that what, what began far back in the Old Testament of these temporary sacrifices that never fully satisfied God's wrath towards sin, they were all pointing forward to a perfect sacrifice that would come. Enter Jesus of Nazareth. 
And so as the angel tells these shepherds where to go and what to look for, they're like, oh yeah, I'm familiar with swaddling cloths. I wrap my sheep with swaddling cloths all the time because they're perfect sacrifices that I need to make sure they're unblemished and they're clean and they're prepared to give their lives to atone for the sins of God's people. Ultimately, we see that that is driving us to Jesus. God is pointing to an even greater picture of the gospel, that even through the swaddling cloths, God is pointing forward to the greatest sacrifice that would happen at Calvary. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then, out of nowhere, suddenly, the sky is filled with angels. There was a multitude of this heavenly army, angels upon angels upon angels, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven. Peace on earth to people he favors. They're declaring God is worthy of glory and honor and power and praise. Praise his name. There's no one higher, no one better, no one sweeter than the Lord. Give him glory for who he is and what he has done. Because now there is peace on earth. Now let's be careful here. Let's define that. Peace on earth is not how Hallmark movies describe it. Can I just let you know that? that Hallmark is wrong theologically a lot. Okay? Didn't know if you knew that or not. Now I love it. Okay? I win big points with my wife watching those movies with her. But... Don't follow your heart, okay? I'll just, we'll, we'll come back to that another day. But good grief, don't follow your heart. Terrible advice. Peace on earth doesn't mean inner tranquility. Peace on earth does not mean absence of conflict. Peace on earth is not that ooey-gooey feeling you get with hot chocolate and snow falling. Peace on earth means that God and man are reconciled. You and I now have peace with God. You see, outside of Christ, we are at enmity with God. There's division, there's hatred, there's discord. God is holy and pure and righteous in all of his ways. By his nature and his justice, he must punish sin. And you and I, broken, selfish, prideful, sinful, our spiritual condition, we are dead in our sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2. And so there's a big division between God and man. We shake our fist in his face when we don't get what we want. We despise him. We turn our back on him, Romans 3. No one seeks God. No one desires him on our own. Then comes Jesus. The one who is 100% God and 100% man. He's the God man who represents both. And through Jesus, peace on earth is found for those who trust in him. For it is through his death on the cross that Jesus makes a way for peace to take place where there once was hatred and discord. You see, God takes his wrath out instead of on you upon his son at the cross. 
and all of our sin that we've committed in our heart, with our words, with our actions, our thoughts, everything is placed upon Jesus. And so now he takes all of it upon himself. Jesus takes the full wrath of God for sin so that now you and I, we have peace with God. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. You see, this peace on earth that this multitude of angels are declaring is not talking about an inward feeling where everybody's around the campfire and enjoying life with one another. No, it's pointing forward to a bloodstained cross where it is through Jesus that we are declared right with God. This is what we're looking at. This is the gospel that we rally around. But I want you to see here in the text, not only the peace that we have, but this pronouncement. This is a declaration. The king has come. God has come to earth. The second thing I want you to see in the text is the modest place for Jesus' birth. The modest place for Jesus' birth. So when the angels left, they returned back to heaven. The, the shepherds, they are totally exhilarated. It's almost like, have you ever been so excited? It's almost like you were running on air. Like you were just like so excited. You had light feet. These shepherds, they make a beeline to Bethlehem. They say right there in the text, verse 15, let's go straight to Bethlehem. Let's see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. That name Bethlehem, it means house of bread. Just as Jesus is the bread of life who has come into the world and those who feast upon him will never go hungry, just as in a few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together as a faith family. We're going to eat the bread in remembrance of the broken body of Jesus. Bethlehem is the city of bread, the town of bread. It's where God sent forth his food, his manna, his son who came into the world for us. And as these shepherds, they come to this little town it's a pretty significant town. In fact, if you go back in the Old Testament, you'll see Bethlehem show up quite a few times. For example, we see that Bethlehem is where Boaz would provide for Ruth. Bethlehem is where David was born and where he would shepherd his sheep. And yet as much biblical significance that this town has, it's an out of the way, it, it's, a, it's a redneck, podunk town. It's six miles from Jerusalem. It's out of the way of the capital city. It's not a significant place on the map in that day. Isn't it interesting that the king was born not in a city like London or New York or Paris or the metropolis of Alabaster. He came to a small shepherding village outside Jerusalem. The king was not born in a hospital with technology and specialized care. He was not placed in a brand new crib ordered by Mary from Pottery Barn. King Jesus was not born in a palace with nursemaids and an OBGYN. He was born in a stable. The poor young parents who did not have the luxuries of society. 
He was not born with great pomp or resources or wealth. The king came through the back door of the world where no one was looking. You see, he he who was rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich in him. You see, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord's looking at the heart. Man is looking, if a great king is to be born, he's going to have the best place, the best city, the best care. Jesus let go of all three of those things. He went to the lowly. He went to the humble. He went to a place that no one was looking. You may be thinking, I don't come from great pedigree. I don't have a great family. I don't have a whole lot of money. What can God do with me? God is looking for the humble, those who are contrite in spirit, those who tremble at his word. And that's exactly where God will use you. Right where you submit yourself humbly before him. That God loves to take those who are out of the way from a nowhere place and it is through there to display his glory. You don't have to come from money or be an influencer for God to show up in your life. You just have to be humble, open your heart and allow Jesus to come over and dominate all of your heart and life. Submit to his lordship. He's not impressed by silver and gold. He's impressed by humble hearts that trust him. You see, Christmas is the celebration of the king who came to save all who turn from sin and trust in him. The question is, would you trust him today? Would you submit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ today? Would you give your life to the one who died and rose again for you? The perfect, unblemished lamb, the perfect sacrifice, the one who came for you. Well, once these shepherds receive God's revelation, we see in the text rapid obedience. They quickly go to Bethlehem. The question is, will you respond with rapid obedience? Will you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ? But I want you to see here in the text, there's two outcomes of encountering Jesus. I'll put this in your notes. I, I, I'm, I was blown away this week as I was studying this. It was It's right there in the text. The first outcome of when you encounter Jesus is evangelism. Public proclamation of the gospel. In verse 17, I love what's happening here in the text. After seeing them, these shepherds, reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what these shepherds were saying to them. We see this rapid obedience where the first thing that these shepherds do is they share the gospel. They become evangelists. They start going throughout Bethlehem saying, hey guys, you're not going to believe this. We're out in the field. Angels appear. Tell us the the Messiah is here. They point us down there. We went down the street, saw the baby, and there's the king. And as they're evangelizing, as they're gossiping the gospel, as they're pointing people to Jesus, they're displaying the modeling what we as a church are to be about. That when you encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, the knee-jerk response is to tell somebody. Listen, man, the king has been born. I got to tell you the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. I was messed up. I was dead in my sins and trespasses. My life was a dumpster. It was a wreck. But then I met Jesus, and he changes everything about me. 
These shepherds are declaring who Christ is. Isn't it interesting? The first thing the shepherds did after they met Jesus was to go and tell the world. That's the first thing they do. You see, when you encounter Jesus, you can't help but tell people who he is and what he's done. Westwood, let's be that kind of people. Y'all, this Christmas, we've got something to tell those who serve us in the restaurants as we tip them well. We've got something to say to our neighbor who's by themselves and grumpy and not interested in personal dialogue. We've got love to give because God has given his love to us first. We've got something to share with the world. And these shepherds are evangelizing, they're preaching, they encounter Jesus and they leave and they go and tell the world. The second thing we see in the text is not just evangelism, but discipleship. We see a personal pondering on the gospel. There was Mary, tired from a long road trip, exhausted from giving birth, and yet her heart is full as she meditates on what has happened. You know, I'm, if you have the, the privilege of having a mom who's still alive, if you asked her, about the day you were born, here's what I think would happen. I think she would look out into the distance and she would begin to recall events of that day, things that happened, things that were exciting, things that were scary and terrifying and all the emotions that go with it. Here's Mary, a brand new mom, a young teenage girl, who was maybe recalling and pondering in her heart how the angel Gabriel appeared to her and says, you're going to be the one who's going to carry the Son of God. Maybe she was pondering about the hard travel that she and Joseph had just gone through to get to Bethlehem. Maybe she was pondering upon what these shepherds had just revealed, how these angels from all over the sky were declaring that God's Son has arrived and she's the mom. This treasuring up in her heart, pondering, thinking all about the gospel, that indeed her son is the savior of the world. And that's not unlike you and I. As followers of Christ, we are discipled by pondering, treasuring the gospel thinking about who Jesus is and what he's come to do for us. We are conformed into the image of Christ by the Spirit who is working in us and leading us and compelling us to treasure, to ponder up these things in our heart, to remember who he is and what he has done for us. So Kenneth, what are you you calling us to do? Well, it's your impact point. It's this. Return to your world with a thrill of hope because Jesus was born for us. Did you see what the shepherds did? Verse 20. They returned. They went back to the fields. They got back to work. But not just with a new perspective, but with new life. An electric charge of God's hope now filled their hearts and souls. They they experience something they would never forget. And in a few moments, you and I are going to return back to the fields, not as shepherds, but as moms, as businessmen, 
as athletes and musicians, grandparents. We're going to go back to our lives. But we get to go back with the thrill of hope. Because this king was born for us. Right now, we live in a world that is weary, exhausted, stressed out, deep in depression. But we've got a gospel to tell that there is hope. And his name is Jesus. And he was born for us. 